This is an ABC podcast. Just thinking back about um, those episodes of The Minefield, very rarely it happens where Scott and I managed to be in the same studio. For the first time listeners, sorry, that's Scott Stevens, my co-host. My name is Waleed Ali. This is The Minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life uh, on this show. Um, And every now and again, we're in in different cities. Every now and again, we get to be in the same studio. And I was thinking back to an episode recently where we were able to do that, not so very long ago. I think it was May. Hmm. And it occurred to me that that will never, (laughs) ever happen again. Hi, Scott. Hey, Waleed. <laughs> That's pretty pessimistic. This is actually bringing back memories of something that you said. Was it March, April last year where you forebode, uh, you held out the forbidding uh, prediction that the episode we were recording at that stage may well be the last minefield of the year? Hang on. Stop misrepresenting this. It was not a prediction. It was a statement of uncertainty. Mm, that's right. Which heading into the onset of the pandemic, I maintain was entirely reasonable. Are you um, saying that I'm being unreasonable now? Oh, look, I don't know. I've given up the art of predictions. I I never had much interest in predictions anyway, but uh, I mean, it it is interesting, isn't it? That one of the phenomenon over, I should say one of the phenomena over the last 18 months has been not just the reassertion of the political importance of states, but also the reassertion of the political and social differences between states. Borders have never seemed quite so hard. The distance between, say, Queensland and Victoria has never seemed quite so far as it does at the moment. And in some respects, maybe that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, I suppose it is. I still want to know whether or not you think we'll be in a studio. I think so. (laughs) I I think so. I think eventually it will happen. I would be very surprised if it doesn't happen in the next four months. Very, very, very surprised. As in, as sometime this year it will happen? Yes, as in some kind of interstate travel, yeah. You're not planning a trip to Melbourne that you haven't told me about. You're not going to move to Melbourne or something and you just haven't told me and that's how you're going to spring a surprise on me. Not going to move to Melbourne. You know, the phrase not enough money in the world comes to mind. Um, Really? Yeah, to some extent. Uh, um, I always thought you were a man of odd taste. I didn't realise it was such terrible taste. Okay. But, right, okay. So... I, th- I actually think in a weird way, actually not even weird, in a, in a very clear way, you and I are perfectly positioned to do today's show because of where we are geographically. True. So for those who don't know, we don't talk about this very often, but for those who don't know, I am in Melbourne and I'm sitting in a studio in Melbourne on, by myself and Scott is in Brisbane sitting in a studio, I think by himself. I've never seen a, an image to confirm that. All by myself. Today. I'd sing it if you wanted me to. Now, are there two cities in the world, sorry, in the country that are more um, firmly separated in experience and outlook uh, and just physical connection than Melbourne and Brisbane at the moment? Possibly po- Sydney possi- and Perth. Yeah, possibly that's, Sydney that's, and Perth. That's bad to say that's yeah, the other but it's, but it's yeah. the same idea, mm. right? Um, and for those, we do have some international listeners, I, I, at least I'm led to believe that, mm. who may not know what's happening. But the idea is that you have some states now in Australia that have just erected um, their barriers, so their borders are up. And it's very, very difficult to get 
into them on account of COVID outbreaks, particularly in the two biggest states, New South Wales and Victoria, which are home to Sydney and Melbourne. And so we now have what you would call a philosophical divergence in the country between those states that are saying, look, COVID's in, we've just got to figure out now how to live with it via vaccination and, and minimising the health damage that is done by it. And then those other states that currently have zero COVID and really want to protect that. And it's the first time in my life, is it the first time in Australian history, I'm not sure, where we're genuinely looking at the possibility of a country that is completely separated, Hmm. where you actually cannot move freely between states within the country, and that that may last for a very long time, in Queensland's case, until it gets an outbreak, which seems to me something that must happen at some point. Or until Um, it reaches a certain level of vaccination. Well, that's the argument, right? Because actually what we're seeing is some of the premiers of COVID zero states, for reasons that I can understand, saying that even then they're going to be reluctant. And it might be, I think what was Mark McGowan in WA, I think his his phrase was, it would be well after that state reaches 80% of total vaccination, of double vaccination. I do think, though, that Western Australia is a very, very different case than Queensland. And it's just struck me for a long time. I mean... I live in Brisbane. Brisbane is right down towards the south of what is a very, very large state. Uh, There are wide levels of, uh, uh, and I suppose widespread levels, in other words, sort of ranging across various demographic groups across the communities in southeast Queensland. Uh, There's a widespread support, I think, for the relatively harsh border that's been erected between Queensland and New South Wales. There are some discussions of various ways in which that might be not so much relaxed, but certain provisions made to allow a degree of travel across. But there are fairly wide levels of support. And I think that support for the way that the Palaszczuk Labour government has handled COVID in Queensland, um, that was tested in last year's. Is it last year? Earlier this year? Yes, last year's uh, state election which was won by Labour very, very convincingly. So I think there are wide and widespread levels of support for Queensland's policy when, it's, when it comes to zero COVID. It just strikes me, though, Willie, that that support is going to run increasingly thin and it's going to come increasingly up against forms of external and civic pressure the closer we get to certain significant days Christmas, I think, is probably the most immediate one. And when it comes to certain significant events and when the external pressure from families wishing to be reunited far more than people wishing to go on discretionary holidays, I think that's probably going to be the thing that once a certain level of vaccination is reached, I think that's going to be the first major form of pressure if the uh, need for out-of-state holidaying isn't another form of, say, economic pressure that doesn't tighten the screws Mm. earlier than that. So, look, I I do think there are forms of pressure. I do think there are temporarily forms of or expressions of popular satisfaction, but I don't think those are immutable. And certainly, certainly not after vaccination rates increase at the level that they really, really do need to. Yeah. Well, for someone who doesn't like making predictions, you've just put one fairly firmly out there that I think is... A little precarious, not because I think it's definitely wrong or anything like that, but I just think about all the other times I've heard similar things predicted, particularly in the context of a state like Queensland, which uh, relies very heavily on tourism. And Mm. there's all this 
you know, well, she can't possibly keep the border up in a state that relies on tourism so much. Eventually the pressure will force her to. And actually, no, the political imperative was to keep the border closed, which she did all the way to the election and then started to release it a little bit. And I think kept it closed beyond a point that invited a really compelling health argument. Mm. So in other words, whatever pressure was forecast to descend upon the crown simply didn't, (laughs) at least not with the sort of force that that was, I think, expected. But I think the difference is, Willie, those are forms of external pressure. I think when certain forms of internal pressure begin to assert themselves, I really do think that... No, but this was internal. Because you have a whole lot of tourism operators in Queensland who were saying, can you stop killing our business, please? We would like people to be able to come here. Yeah. So there was internal pressure. It just mm. wasn't as significant as we thought. Now, it may well be that you're right. But I, I guess what is interesting is that the line which is to open our border even after vaccination or mass vaccination is to bring death into my state Mm. is a strong line. Yeah, it's pretty strong. And the reason I say it's a strong line, and I think the rest of Australia would would do well to remember this, by the rest of Australia, I suppose I just mean New South Wales and Victoria, largely. Um, The reason it's a strong line is it's pretty much the line that the whole country was running in April. Mm when we were, or something like that, it was around April, when we were a zero COVID country. Um, And do you remember, I I still remember this moment because to me it was just the epitome of everything that was wrong with the way we were talking about COVID. When the CEO of uh, Virgin, the airline, Jane Hardlitka, Mm. made that statement talking about, well, eventually once we're vaccinated, we'll be able to open up. And yes, there will be deaths as a result of that, but it'll be about what we have with the flu. And so we need to hurry up and vaccinate and get to that point. And she was besieged. Yeah, that's right. And one of the people that, was, that joined the fray in besieging her, perhaps reluctantly because he was answering a question, was the very same Prime Minister who is now urging states to open up. Mm. Remember Scott Morrison was saying um, that I, w- I have no truck with those comments or it's hard to have any truck with those comments, I think was what he said. And I, I will not take risks with Australian lives. Well, suddenly we're in the mode of taking risks with Australian lives because we recognise there is no such thing as zero risk and that a policy of taking no risks with Australian lives makes life unlivable. I mean, you, you would have to ban automobiles for a start. So I think this is what is fascinating to me is the divide that we're seeing in Australian politics now doesn't any longer seem to be a partisan divide in the way that it was when the politics was around lockdowns. It's no longer really around lockdowns. It's around this question of opening up or not, right? living with, with the virus or not. Yes. And that is a function of circumstance rather than anything. That's right. That's right. But can I rephrase that slightly? Maybe in a different vernacular. I'm not sure if you're going to like it or not. You can tell me if you mm. don't. But it seems to me that what we've been experiencing, especially over the last six months, and I do think the last six months are different because the emergence of the advent of the possibility of vaccines and of the avail- and, and of the possibility the imminent possibility perhaps even of mass vaccination that has in fact changed both the political the civic and in some respects even the moral landscape so it seems to me that one of the things that we've been witnessing especially over the last 6 months is the politicization of fear versus hope, or even if we want to say it somewhat differently, of optimism versus threat. 
the politicization yeah. of optimism versus now we've talked previously Willie about the importance that optimism as a political strategy as a form of political messaging as a particular mode of political discourse uh, the importance of optimism for someone like Scott Morrison uh, that is that is part of his political brand um, you could also say that given the dire circumstances that both New South Wales and Victoria find themselves in the fact of a looming, perhaps, in the next six to nine months of a federal election, it makes a certain amount of political sense for the prime minister to be talking the language of hope, the language of optimism, the language of reopening, the language of getting things back to normal, of re, uh, of resuming ordinary life. You can understand why all of these things are salient, are politically important, are discursively relevant for him. But at the same time, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, it really wasn't that long ago when the language of hope was taken as a kind of libertarian fantasy, as yeah, economic... That's, that's the point I'm making. Yes, yeah. yes. Both as economically driven, but also as civically, morally even, not just irresponsible, but reprehensible. You're willing to sacrifice old people. You're willing to sacrifice children on the altar of economic expediency. Now, I think the problem, though, on both counts... I mean, optimism, you know, I, I think we could have a really wonderful conversation about simply the human need for optimism, especially in dark times, and the difference maybe between optimism and the more morally salient category of hope. Um, hope isn't just pie in the sky. Hope isn't just light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, hope really is something that can sustain in dark times and can lead to greater forms of social cohesion, of mutual obligation, of sacrificial love, and I should also say uh, various forms of, of reasonable risk-taking. Hope can drive all of those things. But I think what's interesting is that where Australia is at the moment is it's almost like different states are on different timelines. In the same way that March, April last year, various parts of the Western world got this glimpse of Italy, and that was the nightmare scenario that needed to be warded. Uh, it, not just the nightmare scenario, but the future that awaited many countries and less drastic action was taken. In much the same way, it's almost like Western Australia and Queensland exist on a different time continuum. We're back a few months from where uh, Victoria and New South Wales are at the moment, which is why we can still talk in terms of the temporally loaded language of threat. These are things that need to be kept at bay in order to preserve the lifestyle that at the moment isn't just tolerable, but actually pretty nice, you know, certain restrictions notwithstanding. Well, yeah, the thing to note is that when the Victoria and New South Wales talk about opening up, they're talking about achieving a kind of living that is approximate to what already exists. Yes, yes, precisely. Queensland right. and WA, perhaps with international travel, but that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Whereas mm. where Victoria and New South Wales are at the moment is it's no longer politically, morally reprehensible to talk the language of hope. And I think this, in, it simply reflects the fact that the ongoing gauntlet of lockdown, the extent to which that's exposed the precarity of so many sections of the public, the extent to which it's exposed so many people to a kind of unrelenting, unremitting assault on their mental and emotional well-being. The, the language of political hope, of what it is that comes next, how it is that we can sort of reassert our, uh, the importance of certain civic virtues and certain forms of ordinary life. These are all the things that are now not just, uh, not, just not irresponsible, but are 
politically absolutely necessary. And I guess to some extent, Willie, this takes us back to a conversation we had a few weeks ago about how much dissent is permissible, is available within a public health emergency. But it seems to me it's a little bit different to that. It's maybe even how much hope is permissible in the face of a public health emergency and to what extent is it still reasonable in other areas to continue to reassert the language of threat in the face of, quite frankly, a lot of questions that we still don't know the answers to. So I'm interested in the fact that you use the language of hope and optimism because to me that's uh, a bit fickle. You can use that language actually, I think fittingly, to describe the position of WA and especially Queensland that is they're very optimistic if they believe they can maintain zero COVID. <laughs> that's that's actually very hopeful. Um, but anyway, that's a semantic. I, I don't think discussion. that either state. I don't think that either state believes that. The, the the thing that drives the internal politics, the domestic politics of both states, is the language of threat. Absolutely, without question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think I think that's fair. Hmm. But I I think what perhaps is a bit glossed over in your description, which I agree with, um, is that. In the case of New South Wales and Victoria, it's not as though there's just been a sudden political, philosophical, ideological shift in relation in the, on the question of how we should relate to the pandemic. The choice has actually been snatched away. Mm. So you could argue that New South Wales always had a bit of that bent to it. And if New South Wales didn't have that bent to it, perhaps the outbreak would have been contained. Because remember, it took nine days before they instituted a partial lockdown and the numbers didn't actually grow very quickly at the start. So there's an argument at the very least, and I would rather hear this from an epidemiologist than from myself, but, you know, from my kind of casual distance, there's an argument at least that that outbreak could have been contained early doors. If they'd done what Victoria had done and they'd done what WA and Queensland always do and South Australia do, then it, it could well have been contained. And we're not snap, having this conversation uh, essentially snap. Yeah. Hard Straight lockdowns. Away. Yeah. Yeah. As it was saying, it might have been a New Zealand situation where mm. Mm. it looked scary for a bit, but ultimately it seems to be coming under control. Um, in Victoria, though, there was no ideological commitment to that kind of flirting with getting through it without lockdown, mm. not after past experience. I, I want to add here that the Victorian government has not actually been a government that has locked down on a single case. It has never once done that. It has that reputation I don't, for very strange reasons. Its, its principal fa failings, particularly in last year's wave, was to lock down late. Remember, they locked down on 191 mm, cases, mm, not right. one. That's daily cases, not active cases. So there's a okay, bit of a, a myth that, there. But yeah, by but that, the time that, that, got... casting, that casting the Victorian government as yeah. a government that's willing to lock down at a snap, at a trice, I mean, that was also <laughs> profoundly politically... Yes, exactly. Yeah. It was. It was. But it is also fair to say that by the time this latest outbreak in Melbourne happened, that that had become true because of, or true enough, because of the severity of the outbreaks. They'd already seen it with the Kappa variant, which they mm. thought was a very serious variant. Um, and then Delta came along and then that's, you know, that's another step ahead as far as just how infectious it is. So, but, so Victoria doesn't have an ideological commitment to avoid the lockdown, right? It goes straight away, but nonetheless, it gets away from it. And Victoria is now in a situation where it's endemic. They cannot 
Nobody seriously seems to believe they can bring it back to zero. If Victoria was in a situation where they could bring it back to zero, then I think Victoria's argument is much closer to the WA Queensland one, right? So in other words, what I'm saying by this observation is that we're now seeing a politics that isn't a function, I don't think, of ideology or partisanship. Mm. Mm. Witness the fact that South Australia and Tasmania, although they've been less vocal, would probably be in the WA Queensland camp, even though they're Liberal governments. And Victoria, being a Labor government, is in the New South Wales camp, more or less. Why? Because it has no choice but to be. Yeah, interesting. Right. So are we witnessing a genuine politics here? Or are we just witnessing the inevitable acceptance of realities that no ideology can bat away in the case of Victoria and Queensland? Which then raises an interesting question for me. Are we talking about politics at all? Hmm. Or are we talking about something completely different? Like if we are like administration, like administration or a managerialism. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And and if we are, then what are we? If we are talking about politics, what is that politics exactly? Hmm. I, I don't know exactly what it is now because it seems to me that what looks like a gaping political hole in Australia might actually be not much of a hole at all. That actually, there's not much of a political contest. Hmm. There are just circumstantial differences. Anyway. Interesting. Hey, just before we get to our guest, mm. there is something I've just been wanting to read, which I actually think is, is an interesting way of maybe doubling down on what we've just been talking about. Um, in George Megalogenes, a great friend of this show, a great, good friend of both of ours, in his last quarterly essay, he had this lovely observation where he says, the politics of lockdown weren't local. They were colonial. We had slipped instinctively into our pre-federation identities with the Victorian Queensland separating from Sydney's rule, Western Australia happily closing itself off from the rest of the continent, while South Australia and Tasmania reverted to insularity. There's almost a kind of, there's almost a kind of, what, what could we describe it as? A political genetic disposition that each state has reverted to for various reasons, um, almost reverted to a kind of historical or civic form. Uh, which, again, I think maybe bolsters your point that maybe we're not seeing things that are political. We're not seeing responses that are political so much as they are strictly situational, almost even strictly geographical. Mm. Well, yeah, and to be clear, what I mean when I say they're not political, I suppose, is that they don't, they're not ideological. Yeah, not ideological, that's right, yeah. Yeah, there might be ideological dimensions to them, but the starting point is actually circumstances. And I think the question then becomes is, what would we be losing if we lose the ideological dimension? Of well, our we, responses we might already to have lost it. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. that might not not necessarily be a good thing. Mm. Anyway, this is the Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. But you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following the Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice. This is a. Uh, not exactly a minor triumph. I'm really chuffed <laughs> that we've got our guest today. It's been a marathon. Is it's the point. been a marathon. Tim Sutpanasan is Professor of Practice in Sociology and Political Theory at the University of Sydney. You all may recall that between 2013 and 2018, he was Australia's Race Discrimination Commissioner. Now, he, along with Mark Stairs, has written quite a provocative, fascinating article for ABC Religion Ethics on the disappearance of political progressive voices during the pandemic. Tim, it's wonderful to finally have you on the minefield. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Great to be with you. Long-time listener, first-time guest. <laughs> there we go. So, look, let's let's begin, I guess, by pivoting off what it is that Walid and I were just talking about. It's striking, isn't it, over the last 18 months that the real divide in Australian politics hasn't been between left and right. It's, between, it's been between state and state and between state and federal government. And I think one of the things that drives then that sense of the lack of real political divisions, which is to say to take up Waleed's clarification, ideological divisions, is the fact that both liberal and labor states are responding to the COVID-19 crisis in remarkably similar ways when certain circumstances overtake them. And it means that also some of the divisive rhetoric that we've heard really gives the sense of being almost more a matter of political expedience than it does ideological conviction. So here's my question to you. Firstly, do, I mean, do you accept something like that diagnosis of where we are at the moment? And secondly, if ideology were taken out of our political responses to COVID-19, is that just good news? Does it just mean that we're following the science and getting on with the task of beating this or living with uh, COVID-19? Or would we be losing something significant if we lost politically or ideologically divergent voices from the equation? Big questions there, Scott. And I've been listening to to your conversation uh, with deep fascination. I, th I think I agree with, with you to some extent that we don't see ideology driving the debate if we're thinking about traditional political party divides or political partisanship. Uh, but I can't help but think there is something ideological in how we're seeing elements of Australian political culture at the national level and also at the state levels coming through. I would say that the past 18 months has been a demonstration of a certain ideological attachment to protection in Australia. We have a clear consensus among political leaders about keeping Australia as a safe fortress right now from COVID with borders closed for the foreseeable future, with uh, the, the, the use of lockdowns where necessary to suppress the virus. Uh, and to a large extent, I think that made perfect sense in 2020 in a pre-vaccine world when we had no real protection against COVID-19. I think what we're starting to see now is a real challenge to that because we're living in a different world in 2021 to some extent, which is that we now have multiple vaccines that are highly effective in ensuring that those who are exposed to the virus that causes COVID-19 don't develop serious illness and, and don't die from uh, the virus in, in, in a way they would if they didn't have a vaccination. Uh, so I think there is a, a certain ideological element to this so-called Fortress Australia approach. And, and you think of it in terms of history and George Megalogenes' diagnosis is a very interesting one to reflect on. I think that there is something in the national psyche, assuming you agree there is such a thing as a national psyche, which holds this image of Australia as an island sanctuary that's to be protected from all external threats. In the past, this was directed at perceived threats from Asia and from the North. Uh, we're now seeing it being utilised or, or being manifested in a desire to keep Australia safe from a virus. And what's really interesting is seeing how this has turned not only against outside threats 
or people from outside the country, but increasingly turned against Australian citizens themselves. I'm thinking, for example, of the 35,000 Australian citizens who are still stranded overseas. In a figurative sense, we have put up the drawbridge to those citizens. And I'm just struck by how limited uh, public sympathy is to to the plight of our fellow Australians. And, and now we're seeing it play out through the uh, border restrictions and, and borders we have between our states. So I, I do think there is something ideological here which is bound up in political culture rather mm. than political partisanship. And if you think of New South Wales and Victoria, for instance, uh, in pre-Federation days, uh, New South Wales was the home of free trade. Uh, Victoria was the mm. home of protection. And I think we're seeing that play out. Uh, we, we're seeing elements of Western Australia's secessionist tendencies at the moment, uh, and, and we're seeing a certain, dare I say, uh, isolationism and parochialism from some of the other states. Um, as for your second question, Scott, I do think there are some voices that we're not really hearing in our public debate at the moment, or, or maybe to put it more accurately, we're not seeing the usual voices entering the debate in the way that you'd expect. And I've been alarmed at the relative silence we've been hearing from friends of human rights and multiculturalism about elements of our pandemic response, because we have seen a significant erosion of rights and freedoms, but we're not seeing a debate about whether or not they're merely temporary or a prelude to something more enduring and lasting. And we've seen to a certain acceptance of a disproportionate treatment of multicultural Australia here. And Sydney is a great example where you have uh, two rules in place for the city. Uh, in the south and southwest and western parts of the city, you have a very strict public health regime there, which involves curfews being in place, no outdoors recreation, exercise only for an hour for residents in southwest and western Sydney who have to contend with a military presence uh, in their neighbourhoods as well. Uh, but there's not quite the same level of force being applied to other parts of Sydney which are more more affluent. So, so we're not hearing or seeing the kind of response I would have expected from progressive friends of human rights and multiculturalism in particular. Hmm. Yeah, the, um, we saw, I think, this week the very real danger of that with the story emerging out of Victoria, not for the first time, by the way, of police using QR code data to try to solve crimes, which seems to me a massive fundamental breach of the pact that goes along with contact tracing and QR codes, but also demonstrates, I think, the comfort that certain institutions and perhaps even the public will have with the bleeding of these kinds of emergency measures into everyday life thereafter. That, you know, we're perhaps not as civically or civil liberty-minded as we might have once assumed, um, and we're perhaps paying insufficient attention to it. I also think you raise a question, and I'm just bookmarking this because if I don't say it out loud, we'll forget. There is a very real show, I think, to be done, Scott, on who exactly gets solidarity in Australia? Mm. Because the shutting of the border and the lack of any real concern for Australian citizens, many of whom will be white, by the way. So even the racial dimension or the ethnic dimension doesn't help explain what counts as an Australian in these circumstances um, is really interesting. There's like a geographic dimension, but then certain things are not extended to non-citizens who are in Australia. It's fascinating. And I wonder whether or not we actually have a logical 
coherent basis on, on which we can sort of describe what an Australian is in the actual imagination of people in Australia, you know, w- what the bounds of, of solidarity really are. Mm. So anyway, we, we should definitely do a show on that. But Tim, the point that you make there about it is ideological because we have this culture of protection, I suppose that that's a useful thing to observe. It's important for us to keep in mind that that does have ideological connotations. But where it's actually reached a point of such consensus... Mm, exactly. Is it an ideological contest? In other words, does it get to the point where it's no longer helpful to use the language of ideology there? Because you're not talking about any kind of political debate that proceeds from certain fundamental assumptions and, and differences between them. You're actually just describing a broadly held culture that may lay or lie dormant at times or express itself more sharply in certain moments than others, but is always there rather than something that is here are competing ideas of the world and how we should react to them. It's a fascinating question. I think we're in the midst of that contest, Waleed. So I'm not sure we're necessarily fixed in in this position right now. Um, and, the, and the contest that I see playing out is a contest between an open multicultural internationally engaged Australia and a closed and fearful Australia. I I agree with you that uh, there's been wild inconsistency from some of our political leaders on this, and it did involve a failure of political leadership uh, earlier this year when we, we didn't see Scott Morrison in particular really spelling out the basic reality of where we are with COVID in 2021. Uh, The reality is that the pursuit of zero cases of COVID is unsustainable and zero COVID is a fantasy. And and this is what... Yeah, but I I have to say, I have a little sympathy for him in the same way that I have sympathy for the leaders in Queensland and WA on this, in that it's very hard to make that transition until you're forced to, Mm. to... And yeah, that's why and, and, and I, and I wonder whether it's, it's appropriately described as anything ideological rather than just purely circumstantial. We, so in New South Wales and Victoria, those states look at Queensland and WA now the way that the rest of the world looked at Australia. Mm, that's right. Yeah. No, I, I, I take your point that it can't be reduced entirely to, to ideology and we're seeing uh, circumstance dictating some of what our politicians are saying. Uh, I, I guess it could have played out differently in my view had we had more principled leadership in spelling out what we had ahead of us. Because I, I, I do think for the past 18 months, Australia has had it relatively well and we've had an opportunity to really get ahead of things. Uh, and we we had a chance earlier this year for political leadership to really put us on a psychological runway, as it were, for living with COVID, because we know that we can't eradicate the virus, we can't eliminate the virus, however much we want to. Our best hope is to get as many of us, and I'm just, you know, spelling out something that people should already know, our best hope is to get as many of us vaccinated. Uh, But the reality is that's not going to mean that we're not going to get COVID. Uh, Cases will still exist. It just means that if you're fully vaccinated, the prospects of you developing serious illness, being hospitalised or dying from COVID-19 will be much, much lower. And, and, And I guess that's where I think the contest really has has been bubbling under the surface it's it's been about accepting that as a basic reality versus the extended promise of 
zero COVID and preventing the bringing of death into one state. Uh, so, so I guess from from my perspective, I see this as a as a real reflection of a lack of political leadership in telling it to telling it straight to people in Australia, which is that we can't entertain this idea that we can uh, have an exceptionalist experience of COVID and that we could keep COVID out when the rest of the world was unable to, that the virus is going to go endemic based on what the majority of scientists are telling us. And and that means we can't really run away and, and hide forever without experiencing some fundamental changes to how we live and to our society. I mean, I don't think there's nothing really normal, for example, in living in a country with hard internal borders. Uh, I don't think it's normal to live in a state of perpetual alarm and fear. Uh, It's not normal for Australians to be unable to see their family because they live across a state border within a country. Now, all of that for me is not normal, but yet I'm seeing glimpses of people starting to accept this as the new normal. Uh, this is The Minefield. Um, Lead Ali, my name is Scott Stevens, my co-host. The voice you just heard there belongs to Tim Soutpomasan, who's Professor of Practice, Sociology and Political Theory at the University of Sydney. Okay, so this is going to sound really weird. And if you can just bear with me for a moment, I, I, I promise it'll, it'll make sense. Well, I don't promise it'll make sense, but hopefully it'll just become <laughs> it a, little, a, little, a little less, less weird. Um, it is really striking to me that throughout the history of democracy, democracy has actually been associated with air and associated with breath. And one of the ways in which the commonality of democracy, the common humanity that democracy is supposed to represent, is supposed to honor, is supposed to cultivate, is supposed to safeguard. One of the ways that that commonality is then pictured is through the idea of open air, the fact that citizens are exposed to one another. We breathe the same air, therefore we can speak to one another. No one breathes better air than anybody else. Everybody uh, is answerable to everybody else. And it seems to me that one of the things we didn't quite anticipate early enough, maybe some of us did, was the extent to which the experience of living in a condition of constant fear and suspicion or wariness of fellow citizens was going to have an effect on certain of our more persistent, we hoped, we thought, we believed, democratic commitments. So, for instance, one of the things that, uh, that say, the French sociologist Hervé Jouvin Uh, wrote about, predicted uh, 15 years ago, is that the great democratic ideals of equality, fraternity, uh, liberty, these would progressively be sacrificed. These would progressively become, uh, become secondary at best luxuries in response to or in relation to the real cardinal virtues in Western society, namely health, safety, and bodily integrity. And it just strikes me that what we've been witnessing over the last 18 months has been the massive resurgence of the vitality, the importance, the supremacy of health, of bodily integrity over everything else. I've I've never quite understood the rationale for why it is that citizens can be kept at bay when there are – aren't there? 
quarantine measures that can be instituted or that can be put into place or that can be modified to allow citizens to come home. That, it seems to me, is a fundamental sacrifice of commitments that we wouldn't have dreamed of sacrificing in other circumstances. So I think there's something about this overarching domain uh, or regime, rather, of the importance of health, safety, and bodily integrity that's given us a degree of permission to sacrifice all of those things that we wouldn't ordinarily, under other circumstances, been prepared even to countenance. And I think that this has been nowhere better demonstrated in the way that it's not just a general suspicion of our fellow citizen breathers that we're wary of, but the extent to which certain infectious breathers have been given a face, have been given an ethnicity, have even been given a location. So think about the snap lockdown of the public housing towers in North Melbourne and Flemington last year, which, you know, on public health grounds, there were good reasons for doing what was done in terms of locking those towers up. But then we've discovered more and more about some of the motivations or the fears that undergirt the lockdowns of those towers, the belief that those inside or that these these towers were habitats for kind of rife criminality or law-breaking, some of the language that we hear being used about Western Sydney at the moment. I mean, these are these for me are really alarming precisely to the extent that they force us or they give us a degree of credence, they give us an alibi to sacrifice those fundamental democratic commitments, namely the degree to which we treat one another with honor, with decency, with integrity. We refuse to engage in forms of categorical discrimination or stereotyping. So these are, these are all the things, it's almost like this has given us the threat to safety and bodily integrity has given us an alibi to do certain things that in other circumstances we wouldn't have ordinarily done, and then to think that we're somehow upholding a high civic or even political ideal in doing so. I I guess that for me, I'm not saying there aren't good reasons for certain things that have been done, like even the presence of ADF troops on the streets of Western Sydney. I'm not saying there aren't good reasons for doing that. But the ease with which we've been willing to humiliate fellow citizens That, for me, is, I think, one of the more ongoing causes of moral and democratic concern. Tim, does that sort of resonate with you at all, or am I I overstating things? No, no, I I think it resonates very much with me. We're seeing a contest between safety and liberty in one sense, and safety is winning uh, in, in, in the debate here in Australia right now. And it goes to your reflections earlier about threat and hope, and, and people's uh, priorities uh, at at the moment, uh, we're we're seeing a very relaxed acceptance of harsh, absolutist measures. I mean, it's remarkable, uh, for example, that we we only uh, heard very muted criticism of what happened in Melbourne with those towers when the Victorian Ombudsman found that there was uh, a breach of the human rights of people who lived in those towers. But uh, that, in my view, in my observation at least, has barely featured in people's discussion of, of what's happened. Um, and, and this goes perhaps to uh, the the relative weakness of a rights culture in Australia. We, we don't have a political culture that, that, that has enshrined rights and freedoms for Australian citizens. We have a much more utilitarian political culture and and one where people have accepted sacrifices or restrictions of liberty in the name of 
public safety and now public health. Um, and, and I think this is a serious question for us to ask because uh, if, as it's said, uh, the, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. If we're, we're not careful about what's going on here, we, we will see not only people experiencing diminished rights and freedoms, we, we might be seeing a permanent fraying of our social fabric. Uh, if we look at what's happening in Sydney at the moment, for example, there are large sections of southwest and western Sydney who genuinely believe that they are being discriminated against by government responses uh, to to them, um, and they believe that uh, uh, this is based on who they are, not on where they are living or or their geographic part of Sydney. I think that's a a view that I'm picking up from many communities and community leaders, and we shouldn't underestimate how difficult it will be to repair this uh, when when we do see some kind of uh, return to to normalcy, or at least let's hope there is such a return. Except that also these things are not just reflective of what's happening now. They're reflective of the accumulated accretions of politics past, right? Mm. So Sydney... Uh, has always been a place where east and west is a very big divide, where the, the harbour is a big divide, north and south is a big divide. It's a balkanised city in a lot of ways. <laughs> and so even before you had the whole, you know, Lebanese gang moral panic in the early 2000s or late 90s, um, you had the whole thing with Westies. and Like, th- this has been part of the grammar of the city for a long time. So th- uh, this is partly why I have, not on epidemiological grounds, but purely on... Um, social scientific grounds, being critical of the New South Wales government's um, approach of having different restrictions in different parts of the city, which is not something we saw in Melbourne apart from fleeting uh, circumstances, cases. Mm. So you had a brief lockdown of certain suburbs and then they discovered that didn't work. You had the situation with the housing towers that Scott just referenced, but that didn't work. But apart from that, the Victorian approach, and I, re- I think really the approach of just about every other yeah, state, right. mm. has been if you're in lockdown, you'll have the same restrictions across the city. That's the way that works. Um, Sydney not doing that, I think, is a very Sydney thing. And I I don't think it's a smart thing for the reasons that you've identified. But I would be a little careful in overstating this. And Scott, I think you might be. So to take the the example that you cited in Melbourne of the Towers and this idea that, which Tim, you mentioned, that this has just not formed a major part of the response. I think there are a few reasons for that. One is that everything to do with COVID and to do with lockdowns is a form of emergency politics. And when that happens... You're talking about human rights being violated in a sense everywhere because people are locked in their homes, right? Now, I understand you can say it's not a violation of human rights because of the public health situation and so on, but what it does inure you to this idea that certain rights are being taken away because there is a, an overwhelming acceptance of an emergency dynamic, right? And so the real question becomes, do we inculcate that so we are prepared to accept that kind of politics when there is no longer an emergency. And we've discussed that and I think those are right things to be concerned about. But the other aspect of the tower situation, Scott, was um, clearly the Victorian government made very big mistakes in that. But what you saw in subsequent lockdowns this year was the treatment of those communities and there were still similar situations where there were concerns in those housing towers, those very same ones, right? The treatment was very different. Yes, it was. And the reason for that was they'd had a go at it. Yeah, exactly. That's the, yes, yes. So I think that 
as attractive as it might be to say this was just, you know, the expression of an underlying prejudice that's irascible, I mean, sure, there are those sorts of dimensions to it. But if that were the case, they wouldn't have learnt from it. Part of it was just that you have to make instant decisions and they are of huge moment and you make a whole lot of assumptions and you just pull the trigger and go for it, which is why I think the Victorian government hasn't apologised for what happened last year, notwithstanding the Ombudsman's report, because as far as they're saying is we were just doing what we had to do. Again, all kinds of critiques are available for the fact that those were their instincts. But the fact that they were able to learn from it shows that there's something malleable here and that we shouldn't necessarily read everything that is happening under the banner of this emergency politics as something that does continue in, into the future yeah. or as an expression of some kind of fixed political reality or fixed set of political interests. No, be- beautifully. But can I just respond really quickly then I want Tim to have sure. the last word on, on all of this. I didn't say at any stage that this was either irascible or immutable. I think one of the really interesting things, and this to some extent came out in our conversation a few weeks ago with Shaka Hamieri, is that one of the things that's been revealed over the course of the pandemic is the diminishment, the contraction of Australian state capacity, that this kind of culture or even cult of outsourcing and privatization really has come back to affect both Commonwealth and state governments. And so we're discovering how many things we don't have the capability of doing, like communicating meaningfully with people in an ethnically, linguistically diverse area, whether it be the towers in North Melbourne and Flemington, or whether it be in Western Sydney. So, I mean, the failures of political communication, just basic political communication here, I think have been egregious. And what's then been discovered or what's been gained over the course of the intervening year has been the reemergence of a certain capability that should have been there in the first place. So I'm with you, Willie. I don't think this is either immutable, irascible, or anything else. But I think maybe what wasn't sufficiently recognized, and we discussed this to some extent during the debate surrounding police abolition last year, that's that police are a face of the state in everyday life. To that extent, police are agents of recognition, or they are agents of contempt. If police make a group of people be seen in a harsh way, be regarded by the public as objects of suspicion or objects of contempt, those people are thereby subject to a degree of humiliation that is not democratically justifiable nor civically warranted. So any use of the police, even, a, even under conditions of emergency politics, and I, I agree with everything else that, that you said, they have profound civic implications for the way that people uh, see and the way that people are being seen. So I, I, I'm with you completely that there has been this failure in state capacity, the failure in, say, civic groups or of civic relation. But the use of police in the service in order to fill that gap, in order to do things in a quick, expedient, necessarily heavy-handed way, that has civic and democratic implications that are not easily overcome even with the passage of time. Well said, Scott. I, I think our response to COVID is, a, is fundamentally a statement about the kind of country we want to be. And uh, I, I fully agree that there are civic and democratic questions implicated here. And obviously the rise of 
emergency politics and the normalization of that has given license to government to expand its powers and to reach into our lives in a way that we haven't seen for, uh, at, at the very least, a very long time, if not um, ever in Australia. Uh, and to date, we've been relatively happy as a society to defer to uh, government on the basis of public health advice. Um, I would just uh, urge good citizens to to continue asking questions, though, about the, the appropriate reach and limits of government power. And you don't need to be a libertarian to, to do that. I, I think this is a responsibility that all good citizens should be thinking about because the pandemic has had a very corrosive effect to our society. We've seen inequalities widened and accentuated. We've seen our political culture shift very definitively back into a mode of protection. And we're seeing a shift away from an internationalised multicultural Australia. In other words, we're seeing a, a very direct challenge to a modern Australia that is an open country, that is a trading nation, that is a multicultural society, that is a democratic society. Uh, and if we don't ask some questions right now, we will uh, very shortly be living in a very new normal. I feel like it's way too early to make that call though, Tim. Well, my my point here is about uh, being vigilant and and having caution around uh, around this. I think if we don't have the debate, then uh, we we kind of uh, slip into this without without there being any debate or contest, and and that's sure. a yeah. and and that's a dynamic in the debate that I, I that I worry about. Um, going to to some of the questions you've already raised about solidarity and and who counts um, as as someone worthy of our sympathy and and attention. I'm seeing a troubling development in in the fact that our national unity seems to be shot now and we've fragmented into uh, uh, a never-ending game of state of origin or so it, so it seems <laughs> when we have our political debates about how we manage the pandemic. Yeah, right. But then you look at America where there's a genuine ideological contest over these things and rights are being very jealously watched. I wouldn't say that that's worked. No, and it's not exactly healthy, is it? No, no that's right. No, that's that's <laughs> not my argument either, Watley, I assure you. <laughs> um, we'll have to hear your argument on America another day, I'm afraid, Tim, because we are out of time. And it's been great. Finally, after, what was it? Seven years. 48 years, I think it was. <laughs> that's right. Um, we finally got you on the show. So, Tim, thank you very oh, much for joining great, us today. Great to be part of the conversation. It's better late than never. Indeed. Tim Supamasan is Professor of Practice, Sociology and Political Theory at the University of Sydney. I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. We'll see you next week. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.